I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the third episode of Marek Makes a Movie, a podcast where I talk to filmmakers about making films and learn from their experiences in order to make my own film. All right, that's the synopsis. You probably know that already. Um, many of you may be wondering, what is happening with your film, Marek? Yeah, you're talking to all these people. That's interesting. When are you going to pull your finger out? Well, here's the latest developments. At the moment, I am writing the first draft of my film, And I've come down to the Isle of Wight to scout some things out. And I sat down with Paul Allen and Bruce Webb, who were both from episodes one and two, and talked about the planned out film and what the budget would be for it. And then they told me that I need at least £12,000. And currently, I'm on £250. Um... Thank you very much to anyone who's donated towards this fine cause. So after speaking with Paul, I thought, um, what can I make with the stuff I've got for potentially very low budget? So I definitely make a film rather than just half doing this. So I've had to sadly scrap my idea, which I've put a lot of work into, or put it on the back burner for Marek Makes a Movie too. And think of a film I can make with my current equipment. I'll be writing in more detail about what's going on on a sort of blog following this journey. You go to marriottlower.com forward slash makes a movie and there's more information there. Also, if you'd like to donate to help um, fund this film, you can click on the donate button on my website. If you donate £5 or more, I'll send you a rubbish badge with a letter and then you'll feel really good about yourself. Thanks to everyone who has you can email in to marriottmakesamovie at gmail.com with any of your questions. I'm speaking so fast, I've got out of breath. Anyway, this episode is about documentaries. And I'll be talking to my old friend Tim Plester, who has made two documentaries, and how he goes about making that. Once you get past some of my initial nonsense at the start, it's actually very interesting. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to follow on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Oh, I hate all this business. Just get on with it, Marek. Marek makes a movie. He talks to different filmmakers. He learns lots of things to put in his film. It's not that type of movie. I mean, it's probably the wrong music. It's giving you the wrong idea. It's just as a normal film, all right? It's not anything. It's not dirty stuff. It's just, a, just listen to the podcast, all right? This week, my guest is Tim Plester, an old acting acquaintance friend. I'm going to call you a friend. Yeah, you can do that. Thanks. Yeah. 
and document we're Facebook friends, aren't we? Yeah, Facebook friends. So that's real. That's real friends, mm. isn't it? I think I've got about four thousand Facebook friends, and I'm probably real mm. friends. Less than that, yeah, yeah right. a lot less. I mean. But we knew each other before Facebook. Yeah, didn't we? I think we'd say people who you, <sighs> if you stopped and had, you would have a chat to. And uh, have, have a beer. Quite happy yeah, have a beer. We should do that. We definitely we will do that. Yeah. Do you uh, know? Do you remember we, we me and Marek? Uh, sorry, I've kind of put. No, go for it. Go for it. Um, we were in a film called Magicians together. Ten years ago, we think it was. And but do you remember there was a day we were filming in somewhere? I think it was Shepherd's Bush mm-hmm. in a hall there, and there was an extra. I don't know if you remember this. There was an extra who was on set with us that day. She was sat behind us. I think we were playing top trumps as we normally did on set. Yeah. And she came and sat with us, and we got on really well with her. I this this is pre Facebook, and now she's famous. Yeah. Yes, because actually I became MySpace friends with her. It's before Facebook. That's just. Do you I mean, know what she, her name she, was? Her name was Tuppence. Name? Tuppence Middleton. She's and done all right for herself. I saw she? her on. You should get her on this. I saw her on Finch. She lived around here for a while. No. I saw her on Finch's Park Tube, and she sort of blanked me. And then later on, now she's sort of had her own series. Yeah. <laughs> or is it Sense Eight or Sense Something? She's, or? Bi- she's big. She's big news. Yeah. Wow. Tuppence. And I've never met a Tuppence before, so it always stuck in Her my parents head. must have been in the industry or something. Yeah. That's a sort of she name you amazing give. eyes, though, do you remember? I mean, yeah, she, still, she, I mean, she, she beautiful. Does. But yeah. Tuppence, doesn't, isn't that an, it is a polite word for uh, vagina, though? Can be. Can be in certain circles, yeah. But not like uh, Noonie. Yeah, remember, imagine if her name was Tuppence Noonie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah. It's good... I mean, it's this is pretty much my. Not, this is my normal fun. level. I'm, I'm, I'm coming down to that. Yeah, you definitely. Yeah. Mine's really yeah. low brow. Yeah. As people will know, I'm going to hopefully make a film at some point. And I thought it was useful to talk to people who've already done it. Tim, you've had great success with your documentaries. You've got the Ballad of Shirley Collins, yes, which is out now. Yeah. What? What are the most difficult things? What are the biggest? nightmares of having to shoot a doc um the, the big i think the big difference between a, a doc and shooting fiction is the kind of the process is is flipped in a way because you you write the film in the edit yeah. to a large extent with a documentary whereas with um fiction you've already written the script and yes you can riff with that and change it and also you can change it in the edit as well but you essentially have a template that you start with that you're that you're working on and you have a kind of you know have a schedule so you have a set what you're supposed to accomplish that day uh, how many pages you're supposed to do which scenes you're meant to do and you can kind of tick that off and feel like you're getting through this thing to create Ultimately, it should all fit together in the edit. You yeah. need to fashion something to glue it all together, which didn't quite work. But with a dock, you, you've, you've, you're flapping in the wind a lot, a lot more. You're hunt, hunting of, for the story, and then when you, you kind fi- of are, yeah. When you find the story, do you find yourself? All I know is just my experience of just doing YouTube videos, which are sort of half going to a place and trying to make a story. Yeah. Then you know you're almost trying to fabricate a bit. What do you, so? You, 
you've done two, The Way of the Morris and Bad of Shirley Collins, both which yeah. I absolutely love. Both have got a really Eng- sense of English sort of rural quality, which is very individual. It's got a distinct style. When you're sort of halfway through thinking, oh, we need this bit, how do you approach... Do you think this, when you've got the footage, you think, I need, we need some it's drama fit, here, we need something... It's sometimes feeling brave enough, I think, it, even though you, you're, you're making a documentary, which uh, people have certain kind of ideas about what that should be, to be able to stop things and say, you know, can we do that again, or can we try and... At any time, you should try and get it for real, because that's kind of what documentary is. And you can do certain things uh, as a documentary filmmaker to try and fashion responses that you want and you get more confident at it as you as you go along and as you earn the trust of the person that you're uh, you know interviewing or working with so there are certain uh, moments in the battle of the shirley collins which we orchestrated as much as we could to elicit um a response and in that in, and in that sense they were scripted in that we created so shirley collins was um big mover in the in the folk music scene in in england in the 60s and 70s she stopped singing in uh the late 70s early 80s and didn't uh record an album for 37 years until she recorded an album in 2006 which um we so we document that process of her recording this new album as well as other things in the film but when she was recording in the 70s she would record a number of albums with her sister dolly uh, and Dolly died, um, I can't remember when, 20, uh, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Um, and so we orchestrated very much a scene in the film, for instance, where we reunite Shirley with this portative organ, which is the instrument which Dolly always played, and it's the, the, it's the actual keyboard that she played on the albums and when they went on tour, and it, we felt that if we could put those put Shirley in the same room as this thing that was such a kind of potent symbol of her dead sister, it would create something, you know, on screen that we could use. And it, and, and it did. And it's near the end of the film. And it's one of the kind of... People really respond to that as, you know, one of the most kind of emotional moments of the film. But that was completely fabricated, if you like, and orchestrated by us as, as filmmakers. And I think there's a difference between people who may consider themselves pure documentarians and people who think of themselves maybe as filmmakers firstly and then documentary makers secondly. Which I, I think, think the classification is really... Is, is, we talked about it before. The classification is just documentary is a strange thing because it's almost like you, it's fiction and there's documentary. Yeah. Where, is the, where is the crossover? And it's really interesting. I watched a documentary. Obviously, my name's Marek and I'm, it's a Polish name. And it's and the reason I've got that name is not I'm not Polish at all. I'm just from you know all my ancestors go back to Norfolk in the 1200s. My mum watched a documentary in the mid 70s. I don't know if I've told you this story before. No, but, no. Uh, a, a boy who had a heart defect. I always assumed there was some Polish. Blood no, I even look like I'm Polish. But there's a he. This boy had a heart defect, and his um, parents uh, took him to the hospital to have this pioneering operation, and he died. And it's a panorama or some one of those sort of things. But if I watch, so you watch this doc. My friend found this documentary for me when I was about thirty-five, and I always thought it was quite a sort of weirdly dark story. But watching the documentary then, from 
well, 40, 35 years ago, well, now 40 years ago, the change in styles and the change in how your influence in music and how it was just RP, here's what happened, here's what happened. Yes, There's no yes. storytelling. And even in the most um, historic, scientific of documentaries now, there's so many other sensory um, uh, ways. Think changing your way you you think about it without you don't realise it's there. I, I think documentary has over the years allowed itself to to borrow certain um, elements from fiction films to you know, or you know have an orchestra, have a soundtrack. Yeah. That um, you know allows makes an audience feel a certain way, or you know shoot it with multiple cameras so that you can edit it and make it look more kind of filmic if you like um but yeah i mean but you still get that on tv you know you get i think if, if we'd have made the ballad of shirley collins for for tv it would have been much more it's week two of um shirley's recording session for the new yeah. album she's feeling very nervous about you know this is, you still get on tv somebody needs to lead you through it and tell yeah. you what's going on now and why this bit's important um so i think that's that's what you can do with a film is you can still be a bit more um, lucid with it all and, and, and then kind of rely on your audience being a bit more intelligent, I think, or a bit more uh, movie savvy to kind of follow a narrative which they don't need to have their hands held completely hopefully I, I don't I don't think that's what we try to do with the I think no, I think you get the whole feel of it I think it's just the, the pace of it is really interesting how you're going to pace that documentary and one question I have for you is when you've got these I think it's applied to any filmmaker if you're doing it, it, so if you're a low budget filmmaker and you've got time constraints similar to a documentary with that scene with Shirley Collins as you know she's going to see the organ you yeah. know that that is your that, that um, emotional reactions only happen once. Yeah. So technically, did you? What did you do to sort of set that up to beforehand? Did you go and scout out the thing? Did you work out what shots you were going to do beforehand? I mean, what was, yeah, what we, was the crew? Was it a small crew or really small crew? Um, we we got there ahead of Shirley, um, so we could just have a quick look at the space because again, we were, we could only afford to hire the, it takes place in an organ, a working organ factory where they make, um, you know, pipe organs to this day. Uh, so there were people working in there as well. Which we, so we filmed some of that while we were waiting for Shirley to turn up yeah. actually. But we had actually been in and kind of wrecked the space. We decided where we wanted the organ to be in the room and thought about how that would work if we followed her in with the camera behind her, how we could, Kind of then pull round behind her and see. Both Did you of them walk in the that through on, on camera? Yeah, so yeah. we kind of walked that through, and 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 but not, you know not but quite quickly. You, have to, you know we had to make quite quick decisions um, about it, and then you 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 kind of have to just hope that you that you get it. Yeah, and I think even after that scene, and and Shirley had left, and we looked at each other, and, and it was the moment of, did we get it? I don't know. I think I think we did. And what were you shooting? Was it just a, was it just a sound boom operator on a sound and one yeah and one camera with single one camera, camera single camera on that and 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 a boom and then me and my co-director uh, Rob Curry and if that, I mean the the precarious thing about the way we've been shooting our documentaries and I don't know if this changes for other people if they've got more money is um, because we're shooting on small handheld cameras but there's no there's no monitor oh, really? so I really can't you... even actually see. What, are you what the DOP shooting? You're trusting that. Wow. 
Um, so it's just four, so it's four of you: DOP, sound guy, you and Rob. Yeah, and me and Rob, yeah, yeah. And that was most of the documentary just that. Sometimes we would have a second camera, yeah. and Rob would operate that. Um, but Rob has a kind of rudimentary knowledge of how these things yeah. work. Um, so th- what we did differently with Ballad of Shirley Collins to Way of the Morris is we made sure when we could we had two cameras going, so that you always had a, a backup. And did you find that editing where the Morris you just thought, oh shit, we should have had... Way of the Morris we got through by really by the skin of our teeth. In really? terms of the ratio of footage shot to what's in the film, it was something like, um, I don't even know how you say the ratios, but it's four to three. I mean, it was there was wow. not, not much that wasn't in the film. With Shirley Collins, it's more like uh, two to ten. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots. Or one to five. Yeah, let's just make it like, oh, I mean, two to t- yeah. Like, even to, yeah, the going was good to firm. Um, we shot a lot more for the Battle of Shirley Collins, partly because we had two cameras going at some at some point. And did you ever feel, as director, then, that you wanted to be behind, you wanted to operate the camera so you'd have more of a, a, a control over it? I've not, I've not, I've not really... Um, I've not really felt that on the films we've made. I've not felt that uh, um, necessary thing to know exactly what's being shot. But I think that comes from the fact that uh, Richard Mitchell, who's the DOP, um, we've worked with him on everything mm. that we've done. So he has an understanding of um, of what we're after. And in fact, to the extent that there's one sequence in the Ballad of Shirley Collins, uh, which is the sequence down on a hop farm in Kent, Sussex Kent borders, uh, where they're gathering in the hops and 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 um, putting them in these big bags, and and we me, neither me or Rob were there on that day. Oh really? We literally sent Ro- uh, Richard on his own with a camera, not even any sound, kind of remotely to film this, knowing that he would know the kind of footage that we wanted him. But it's to get. very much in. The, it, I, I think you said with a documentary, you're making that story. It, it's so edit driven, yeah. Of you looking for the footage, especially where you watch it, the feel of it and the pace of it, yeah. It very much feels so. You sit in the edit with Rob, watch all the footage to you, and then yeah. We well, the way we ended up editing it, we didn't. Uh, me and Rob didn't edit Way of the Morris, but we did edit Ballad of Shirley Collins mainly because there was so much footage in the end, Marek, and it got to a point. It got to a t- tipping point really when we we always thought that we would get a, you know, a proper editor in. Um, but the cost of edit houses It got to a point, much. yeah, all of that. And it, it got to the point where even if we get somebody in now and we can pay them, it's actually going to take them two weeks to literally sit and watch all the rushes. And we haven't got time. We had a deadline pressing. And me and Rob had begun to start assembling stuff. And me and Rob had both had an encyclopedic knowledge of the footage as well, which an editor coming in wouldn't have to be able to say, oh, hang on, because, there's a bit... Because you were there, you were there, you know... Because we were yeah. there and we'd watched it all. It was much quicker for me and Rob to... We had a shortcut in terms of knowing where other footage was. Or oh, hang on, there's a close-up of her hands from that day when we did that. Let's put that in, see if anyone notices that it's not the same day. Those kind of tricks that you do. And the way we edited it in the end was... Um, I edited it here, where I live, in Finsbury Park, and Rob edited at his house in... Um, mile end we would bounce or just on final final cut or final print. cut on final cut when we would bounce stuff back and forwards and and um, I remember as a young man wanting to work in film and TV and I was a big fan of 
Blackadder. Mm. And I remember reading an interview with either Ben Alton or Richard Curtis once saying how they wrote Blackadder. And they said, so you six episodes. So Ben would write three, Richard would write three, and they'd do a draft, and then they'd swap. And Ben would rewrite Richard's ones, and then they'd swap again, and then the person who'd originally done the first draft would rewrite. So there'd be the third draft would be by the person who'd done the third, mm. first draft with the second draft by the other person in between. And they said that, was, that worked really well for them. Mm. And so we did a similar method, in a way, that I would do a pass, Rob would do something then they'd give it back to me and sometimes it would go back and forwards more times than three um, but that's generally how, how we did it and so it felt like because there are people who, who will say never let a director edit their own work. Oh really? But, yeah. Um, but I think if there's two of you that makes a difference for a start um, It's time isn't it? I think where I'm at my experience just editing crappy YouTube stuff I've made but well, you go back and if you try and edit the same day and then put it out, your judgment's just screwed. Yeah. You need to... When you go back a week later and you're, it's no longer so personal yeah. and no longer feels like you're the same person as you were who made the film, you've got that a fresh pair of eyes. is just invaluable, isn't it, I suppose? I mean, <clears throat> again, that is actually one of the advantages of it taking three and a half years to make is that there were periods in between uh, the actual filming and editing of it where we were not working on it we were doing other things and then you'd come back to it slightly fresh and you'd look at something again and go yeah okay that that needs completely redoing um and it meant that you would come back when you were filming again you were slightly refreshed you'd had time to reflect you would be my experience of making the the two feature length docs is both of them took uh, quite a long time to put together where the morris was two years i think two and a half years and shirley was three and a half years but the periods in between physically either filming or editing were really beneficial in, in thinking about it and beginning to start assemble things. So you had an idea of stuff that was working so that when you came back to film again, you were much more confident about what you knew you needed and what you knew was working and in, in ways of dealing with the people you're interviewing as well. You'd kind of maybe there'd been a, f- a few uh, dead ends that you'd gone down with that. Um, you look at it and go, that was a complete waste of a day's film and we've got nothing we can use there. Mm. But actually it's not because it means when you come back, you know not to, to do that. It's, it's, it's like when, a, um, when you write as well, if you're writing a script um, and people who I think don't understand that creative process will say to you at the end of the day, how many pages did you write today? You say, um, none, nothing. Well, you haven't done anything today. No, I've done a lot. Mm. It's the stuff that's not on the page. This is as important as the stuff that is on there. That's just you know that's that's difficult to kind of explain to people. Yeah, it's really. I think you're working out how you write and how you write best. I need to go for a walk, and I might have an idea. And it's almost like your brain needs to stew on the idea. And that stewing time, yeah, it's just important. If you're just sitting there writing stuff you don't even haven't even thought about, just chuck it all away. Literally producing. I've done that. Just text, you know, writing more work for yourself. That's not thought through, but that guilt of thinking (laughs) I have to write something. So just by the fact I'm filling up a page means that it is of value. Doesn't mean it's of value or it's any good. I think I learned that from uh, Dennis Potter, who was probably the first kind of screenwriter I ever really got into and, and read interviews with him and, and, and analysed his work and I think he talked about that a lot about it not just being about volume of work, it's you know about quality of it and as long as you've sat there 
and done the hours. It doesn't matter if there's... Some days you actually sit and just stare at that, that bit of paper. Yeah. And nothing goes down. But <clears throat> hopefully it means because you've done that today, it means tomorrow you can get something mm. down. It's break time. Time to have a break. All the talking, it's too much. I just want to have a little bit of music in the middle to calm myself down. Now I'm ready to get back to the podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The other, uh, I think, really beneficial thing we did with Ballad of Shirley Collins, which we didn't do with Way of the Morris, and I would kind of, I would recommend it to anyone now having done it, is we did a test screening of the first assembly that we oh, had. okay. And we showed it to people. We showed it to people that we trusted. We showed it to people who knew who Shirley Collins was, people who'd never heard of her, people who were really into music, and people who weren't particularly into music, maybe more into documentary. And we got them to give us feedback on it. And the thing to be wary about that is that certain people particularly if they actually work in film themselves, will end up giving you a series of notes of how they would have made their uh, version of the film, which yeah. isn't, actually isn't helpful. <clears throat> but what is helpful is you get a number of notes which are the same. If you get the same note two or three times, then I think you have to sit down and go, OK, maybe there's something in that one. Mm. This one here is just purely that person's beef about something. We, we can ignore that. Yeah, but burn the, it. But this this note has come up three, four times. So let's look at it and try and tackle it. And you don't necessarily have to do exactly what somebody has suggested you should. But I think it's a it, it gives you pause to think about. Okay, we're still going to do it that way. But why are we doing that way? Why do we think it's important to do it that way? Why do we think that that bit should be in it and and not? But the the notes that we had from the Ballad of Shirley Collins, changed the front end of the film dramatically. Okay. The first 20 minutes of the film are very different from the first assembly. Most of the back end of it 
stayed as it was, but it was about setting up the film. A lot of people felt that we had been a bit too um, cryptic or a bit too... Um, our lightness of touch was a bit too light. Just, you need to tell me a bit more here. Mm -hmm. You're trying to be a bit too kind of... I do, I do need my hand held slightly mm. at the beginning and then you can let me... That's the other thing. It's so difficult when you get so close to something. You can never really step back and it's, be objective. It's tough. So, I, you know, I think, you know, I, that's one of the good things that I think that I've experienced working with Rob is that there's always two of us. And I think that always means there's at least two sets of eyes on something. It means um, you can disagree about things. Uh, it means you sometimes have to fight to put something in. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Uh, sometimes it's about choosing which battles you think, OK, I really want to do it this way here, but I'll let that one slide. Um, but it also, my experience of it, because it's so hard to keep it going, to keep the momentum going, that what's great about having a, a second person uh, is that there, there are going to be days when you just don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And at those days you can say, right, you pick up the baton today. I can't, I'm done. And then don't worry, when, you, when you're done, it'll be my turn. But please you drive it today because I'm mm. spent um, so I've never had an experience of being like a solo filmmaker even the short films that I made prior to the docs um, I made three short films with um, a chap called Ben Greger we made these comedy shorts called Ant Muzak, Blake's Junction 7 and, and World of Wrestling <clears throat> and Ben directed those but I was always around, I was the writer but I, you know, I was allowed to be <laughs> You're not not always allowed to be as the writer. I was allowed to be on set and to be a part of of that. I didn't I didn't spend any time in in the edit on any of those, but um, they they felt like collaborations. Yeah, uh, very much, and I and I've enjoyed that. And I've, my background is in theatre before that, and I've always enjoyed the collaborative nature of of that. So I've tried to maintain that with with the film as well, and. There's one other short film that me and Rob made, which you haven't seen, which is called Here We Unbe Together, which I'm is not seen set that. in Norfolk. Is it on the interweb? Uh, it is on the interweb, yes, for free on Vimeo. Here We Unbe Together. Here We Unbe Together. We un. Here We Did un you manage to get together. people to do, because I was born in, in Norwich, well, my family have got one. to... No. God, trying to get people to do Northland accent right it's a very difficult thing to Mary, do this the, did you get the cast to do it basically what's <laughs> great about Here We Be Together it's a doc uh, but it's a real um, possibly pro I think not even probably my favourite filmmaker is Werner Herzog mm -hmm. uh, and in fact I've taken I've, I was going to say borrowed but it's more likely stolen uh, a lot of kind of ideas about how to make documentaries from, from what Werner does uh, although I'd never you know, never uh, <coughs> deign to think I could do a voiceover quite as good as, as one of <laughs> but um, he has this theory about if you turn up somewhere with a recording device and the right frame of mind something interesting will happen and I take try and take that on board sometimes when we, we've been filming it's like what the hell are we doing what are we getting to there I don't even know what we're doing and you try and believe in this belief and a concrete example of this being a truism is when we went to film Here We Unbe Together mm -hmm. which we shot over two days in the end we went back 
six months later and did some pickup stuff. But the crux of the film and the bulk of the film, we went up to Norfolk to film the World Dwyle Flunking Championships. Do you know about Dwyle uh, Flunking? I absolutely do not know what Dwyle okay. Flunking is. So that was our intention. We'd made the Morris Dancing film uh, and we thought we should do something else in a similar vein. What about Dwyle Flunking? which was something me and Rob had both heard about but never seen, and it happens on the Norfolk-Suffolk borders. Mm -hmm. So we went up to film these Dwarf Lonking Championships, and while we were there, they were, they were doing the Dwarf Lonking. We went round the corner... You have to, to briefly explain what Dwarf Lonking well, is. Well, I'd rather not. I'd rather you watch... OK, film. fine, fine. Good, good. Um, Suspense. It's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, yeah, I'm not even, no, I'm not going to Okay, great, fine, fine. <laughs> Partly because actually the reality is dual flunking is not as interesting as it sounds. One of the greatest unfortunately, names. Yeah. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite live up to it. But what we got in instead was we went round the corner, they were sort of dual flunking out, I'm going to keep saying it, they were dual <laughs> flunking outside this pub in Norfolk near the Broads. And we thought, let's go round the corner and get an interesting shot through a hedge of them you know, in the distance doing it. And doing as we what? went round, dwell flunking. Okay, they yeah. doing the dwell flunking yeah. in the field outside. <laughs> I'm not going to say Ebbing, Missouri. That was the other podcast that we've done. Um, and as we went round the corner, there was this ramshackle collection of huts with handwritten signs all over it. Ken's Veg. This old, old boy called Ken had set up, a, you know, grew the stuff in his garden and set up a little shed and you could go in. It was an honesty system. You put money in the bucket and took some raspberries. And we thought, well, this looks brilliant. It looks like it's just blowing. It looked like something from Mad Max. Yeah. It was just blowing <laughs> in on the wind and just settled there. So we thought, well, we'll definitely get some, some cutaways of this. This will this work somewhere. And as we were filming, this old Volvo pulls up and we thought, oh, fuck. We're going to yeah. get told to move on. And it, it was Ken himself, this old boy. Checking up on his veg. Gets out, Ken gets out. I mean, if you're talking about a quintessential North of oh, this boy's got it. Ken, 80 years old, lived there his whole life. Uh, he had to go in and have his tea. But he said, I'll come out and have a chat to you afterwards, if that's all right. We put a microphone on Ken. And he talked at us for an hour, solidly. Absolute gold dust. And suddenly... <laughs> So he, he didn't even pour through breath. He'd be like, "Isn't that one for you?" So this, the, when I was, you know, when I was, when I used to do this, and back then when I was doing that, it turns out he'd been he used to do dwile flunking in the seventies. It was one of the things he used to do over weekend. He would go dwile flunking. Other weekends he'd play darts with Eric Bristow. I mean, the, tall, the man had got more tall tales in his back pocket. So that became the main thing, and the dwell flunking was a cutaway. So. As we're filming this guy, me and Rob are looking at each other, going, "This is the fucking film." Yeah. This is Herzog. We turned up with the right intention and Ken arrived. This is the film. Wow. So it actually has becomes and is a field recording, if you like, of this old boy who, you know, they don't make him like Ken anymore. And mm. when he's gone, he takes these stories with him. And then the dwarf flunking is very secondary to to the film. It, doesn't, it is a film about dwarf flunking, but it's a film about this That's old great. fruit and veg seller. That must have been so exciting to realise 10 minutes in that you've this got like, there this. was just I will never forget it we both looked at each other and it was like oh my god jackpot hit the pay dirt here I just hope that you know is the camera on just make sure the red light's on oh god okay we've got a film that's great because we spent the rest of the morning kind of going that 
quite I'm not quite sure what we're going to do with this. That's what's weird, isn't it? When you're when you having the bravery to say that this doesn't work, or trying to work out if it's if it's just your idea, something's not working, and the difference between what you get on film when you watch it back. Sometimes when yeah. you're there, it looks shit, and then you when you go, oh this is and then it's gonna be too big or too small or yeah, or works when it doesn't look right works perfectly. I mean, the thing that I've learned from making all these documentaries is it's it's okay, I think, with a documentary, as you do with a with a fiction, to go back at a later date and do some pickups, yeah, close ups of stuff that you didn't get because you don't shoot it like that, and there'll be times you think I didn't can't really see what that is that they're talking about, so I'm gonna have to go back and you know, construct it, reconstruct it as best I can and hope that people, A, don't notice and B, if they do or even if they don't and you tell them afterwards, they don't mind because, you know, you are making a film. At the end of the day, you are telling a story. Mm. Whether it's documentary or fiction, you still have to tell a story. It still has to have a narrative. It can't just be... I think, you know, in that respect, my argument is the only pure form of documentary is um, CCTV camera just unedited yeah that's because the argument is the minute you do one edit there is interference then from an outside yeah. force you are manipulating the footage and the information which is why Big Brother suddenly became from an experiment to some something that's not Big Brother at all to people manipulated yeah, which, yeah it was all well that really was manipulated at the start but it became more and more into it's not even that anymore. It's not this. It was uh, the, way, the way that kind of began to break down as well was the, you know they had the little room where you would go and talk. Yeah, to yeah. Brother. That was their way of thinking. God, what if they're, we're not getting anything? Well, yeah, let's of get them in a room and have them talking to camera. We can at least get that and maybe construct the other stuff of you know. Yeah. We'll have five minutes of them talking and then forty minutes of people asleep. Is that going to work as a TV show? Might just. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- there's obviously a whole level of. Um, steps you can take in terms of fabricating stuff in a documentary but my argument is the minute you make one edit you've already it's already a lie yeah it's already a lie and in terms of distribution Weather Marsh was your first one yeah did you just think oh we're going to and you funded that by Kickstarter Way the Morris then... we didn't Way the Morris was um, pretty much self funded oh really to be honest yeah. okay yeah. oh sorry Shirley Collins was a Kickstarter Shirley Collins was a Kickstarter yeah yeah um, I mean the great thing about doing it as a Kickstarter is you instantly um, you know there's an audience for it because all these people have come forward to give you money to make the film so that gives you a confidence mm. um, that you're making something that people want to see it also then gives you a stress of there were times when we didn't know how we were going to do it and we're like oh my god but these people have paid given money, us money yeah. they want, we've got to make something because they've given us money um, but what you ended up doing as well is I've never had this experience before as a filmmaker is you ended up with people saying, when can we see the film? It wasn't a case of, we've made a film, now we need to convince people they want to see it. There was yeah. already a ready-made audience for it. We knew there were going to be X amount, several hundred people who'd put money in. But at least those people would at least see the film. Yeah. Then, of course, the task is always to try and get more people to see the film. And in fact, what we've really tried to do, I hope, is make a film for people who haven't heard of Shirley Collins, or in fact probably don't even like folk music, those are the people who really want to see the film. Well, that, that is me. Yeah, well... And, uh, and I really, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's great. Well, I mean, that's that's great to hear. And we, and we tried very hard not to make it a film for, um, you know, diehard 
folk fans or Shirley Collins fans and certainly it's not a straight biopic in the way that mm. most kind of uh, music documentaries are you get that succession of talking heads who come on and tell you how brilliant somebody yeah is it felt really and, it know. felt totally fr- fresh it was great and has it made you just for the last thing before we um, finish what does it make you feel like oh, I want to make more then did you enjoy the experience is it the experience you thought when you went oh, I'm going to make a documentary what's the end feeling you have oh do you feel like I've achieved something or that is totally different to what you thought or there's a there's a there's a really odd feeling with it when I watch it now um it feels like I mean I'm real I mean I'm deeply deeply proud of it and I think it all kind of hangs together really well and it feels like it arrived fully formed and of course that bit went there and led into that which made a parallel with that and that meant that we could resonate that image of that with that audio from here um, but obviously the reality of that is that it was really hard to construct it all and when I look at it now I don't see the joins I see it as one beautiful flowing thing that works and I think that's the way that artistic projects work um, which makes it then difficult to when you start a new one and the the first time you get to a difficult point you're like I don't remember being this difficult the last time yeah. the last one I just shut out in my sleep didn't I yeah. and you're like no you really didn't it was it was hell it's absolute hell so that I'm at that point now with what we might try and do next I'm actually in in fear of of the, the you know the the fear of the blank page again is, is in front of me at the moment I have some ideas about what I'd like to try and fill it with but it's trusting you know the Herzog thing as well of trying to trust your instincts a bit but until we've shot anything I guess so what we're trying to do is is gather enough funding to at least go out and you know spend one or two days trying to put something together that can give us a flavour of, of something but we've got a few ideas and nothing nothing concrete at the moment wow but it, and on one level it doesn't feel like I'm any closer to making uh, the next thing I want to do than I was before I made The Ballad of Shirley Collins always it starts with a sheet of blank paper well that's um, thank you very much Tim for coming in thank you man. I will give you all the details in a, in a second of all where you can find out about Tim but thank you for your time and um, yeah well I'm looking forward to your next project well good luck with you, with yours as well um, yeah any, well, I mean, we'll anything I've, I've, I've learnt I'm, I'm available for uh, consultation that's very kind of you thank you alright I'll see you later cheers ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt free dream come true baby it's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.